As I said, there, is, uh, there are handouts back there. At least I think there's handouts back there. Hopefully there are handouts left. I understand why Wes was a little worried this morning. He came to me and said, so what, what, is this, what is this about tonight? I said, well, it's, it, I, I said it's the idol of pleasure, but we're going to talk about sex tonight. And he's like, oh, what? And I said, well, that's hard to find a worship song about. But, but I, I actually think, Wes, that that one fit pretty well because it talked about temptation and giving God the glory and all that tonight. And uh, so we're going to talk about, let's, let's say, intimacy in a sexually saturated world. Uh, this idol was coming, and uh, we were eventually going to get to it. Uh, we tend to, uh, within the world, even the world of Christianity right now, uh, we rightfully are disturbed and um, wonder about how things are going to go in terms of um, gender ideology, uh, LGBTQIA+, they keep adding letters to that, and all those different things. And one of the things that can turn into a problem is when we emphasize and look towards the sins of others and things that we know are very specific and explicit, um, we lose track of even some of the things that we need to make sure that we are aware of that are temptations even for ourselves. I actually had a pair at one time. He, um, it was a situation where he was unhappy with uh, his son's relationship, but he said, but at least it's, he's having problems when it comes to a girl and not a guy. And I said, well, I don't know if that's the way we should go with this. He is still sinning. And uh, one of the problems I think that has popped up is we're pretty good at calling sin, sin, but then we forget to call certain sin, sin, because it doesn't feel like it's as bad a sin. We are in a world that is soaked through and through in terms of culture, media, um, internet, uh, all types of different levels and, and layers, uh, whether it comes to movies, whether it comes to shows, whether it comes to uh, Broadway or stage plays or live concerts or videos. Um, we're in a world that sex and sexuality uh, is basically soaked into everything that there is. In fact, some of the notes that I was walking through, as you can imagine being a youth pastor, a standard youth pastor lesson has to be about talking about the importance of making sure that things, things are right. And I remember, and so I've looked at these notes from over a decade ago, and I'm like, man, these are, these are some bad stats. And then I realized, oh, I don't even want to know what the stats are now. I don't want to know what that looks like now. Uh, right now, in terms of even uh, one of the things that I'm constantly trying to grow in is in the area of counseling. And one of the areas of counseling that continues to grow is sexual sin, sexual abuse, and the results of the, the use of pornography, uh, the results of being really in a society that is basically just cramming uh, intimacy and or at least fake intimacy and sex down people's throats. Um, it's in everything that we watch. It's in everything that we interact with. It's in the world around us. Um, my wife and I have kind of talked about, oh, we, we hate trying to figure out what to watch anymore because sometimes we find, we'll find something we like to watch and it's always episode like five or six, like, well, we're done with this. We can't do this anymore. And it's getting to the point now where all we want to do is watch sports. But as I mentioned this morning, then I end up watching the Browns and I'm miserable anyway. So then it's just like, well, we'll just kind of stick to something else. When it comes to the internet, when it comes to apps, uh, when it comes to, unfortunately, whether you realize it or not, some of the apps and uh, some of the forums that our young people are on, 
There are many parents that don't even realize that while they are not necessarily full of pornography, it's accessible. Um, I remember it's about 10 years ago, uh, sitting under a gentleman who was really giving a challenge to our church in Niles, and he was just reminding them, if you don't have a filter on your computer and you don't have a filter on your kid's phone, you are responsible for what happens as a result of that. Uh, you cannot give them just an unmeasured, unfiltered access to the garbage in the world that is out there. Uh, even in, in our own home and in my own life, even when it comes to my own phone and the internet in our house, that is something that we keep tabs on, not just because we, have, because we have kids there, but because our house is full of sinners. And, and I'm, I, I am a man who can be the chief among them if I am not careful when it comes to this area. We in the past, I remember when I was young, there, somebody was talking about, again, this is old stuff. This is a 10 years old, so it's even more so now. It's just continued to go that way. But I remember reading a gentleman, uh, basically he was talking about the scenario that young people were going through. He said in the past, it was something that had to be looked for. It was something that a young person would have to go either steal or find from someone else. He says, today, we can barely escape it. Now, that was about 10 years ago. Now, I would say today, there really is no escape from it. Uh, the responsibility for us as parents and responsibility for us as a society and uh, especially for us as believers, I think, is to make sure that we communicate how to deal with temptation. I think in the past, one of the faults was just saying, all right, we're going to cut off every avenue of temptation. Our kids can't handle it, so we're just going to eliminate it. And what we found out is we can't fully eliminate it, and they weren't equipped to handle it when the temptation came uh, as a freshman at a very, very conservative college, what I found out was there were a lot of young people down there that had been, basically their parents had cut off all levels of temptation they possibly could. And uh, that community before and after that, before that school started in the fall, and especially I had a job that went about a week longer after school got out. And uh, what I saw and what I saw taking place and knew was taking place in students what they, once they got off campus and were free to do whatever they wanted was a wildness and a craziness of I no longer have everything cut off and all of a sudden they were flooded with the world of temptation. So part of our responsibility is also to recognize how do we deal with temptation? How do we interact with the world that is constantly going to throw temptation at us? And why would we say that this is a, an, an idol? Well, the idol of pleasure is kind of the overall thing. We're going to talk a little bit later about comfort in a couple of weeks, the idol of wanting to live comfortably. Uh, we're going to talk about the idol of choice. There's a number of things now that are going to fall under this area of pleasure. And tonight, uh, we're going to talk about this area of uh, sex and fake intimacy or uninhibited intimacy is the term that I used there. Sex and pleasure have become an object of worship. Something that we worship is something that is of the, the, the priority to us. It is something that, that the, the world says it is something that they have to have. When we lose our faith in God and when we do not follow God, there are always other things that want to rise up and take the place of God. And we, within the world, see over and over this area of sex as a near-sacred, uh, mystical type of thing. As we go through the book of Thessalonians and we look at some of the, um, 
those cultures that the Christians were coming out of, uh, sex was literally part of the worship. You know, so sometimes that we say, you know, it's worse than it's ever been. I don't know. I think there's some examples in the first century world that we may see. Those are some places we still might end up going towards. In fact, I think we could at least make a general statement that that gender and pleasure and getting what I want is the new religion. I will get what I want. I will act on what I want. I will take what I want. I will even be who I want to be. And so in those areas, it's important for us to think through these things. Also to think through what sin does and what this area does as well. It is a, it is a substitute for this, what God has made something that is very sacred. We know uh, from the book of Genesis, we walk through male and female created he them. We walk through Adam and Eve and nothing else. But what we're going to look at today is just to, today is just to be reminded that when we get this thing wrong, as well as really many of, of these other areas, uh, just as we kind of get back on track here, whenever we get lost in something that sets itself up higher than God, we are now bringing into our lives a distraction. We're bringing into our life something that distracts and detracts from worshiping God. Whenever we are in sin, whenever we fall into temptation, it, these things become a barrier to spiritual growth. Um, this area of uh, immorality, of adultery and infidelity, it, it is a destroyer of marriages. It is a destroyer of families. Um, I read, again, it's old, older stuff. There was a, a psychiatrist. He said, if it wasn't for pornography and adultery, I would be out of a job. Uh, the, amount of, the amount of work that had to be put in, the amount of lives that are hurt and harmed by this area. And there is this idolatry that takes place. And we are in a culture that is permeated with all of this. And, and we even recognize, and unfortunately, even within Christianity, uh, there have been so many that have fallen uh, victim to this. This type of falling away results in a distance from God. Whenever we chase something other than God, we distance ourselves from God. Distance is a result of idolatry. I read one gentleman, he said this. He said, unfortunately, even within our churches, there are those who are teaching Sunday school, singing in the choir, supporting their family, getting ahead in life, living in a nice house with a nice car, nice clothes, and a nice future, even understanding that people are looking on them as an example and even though they are stuck in sin, they keep saying, I'm okay. He says, yet privately their conscience dims until they can't tell what is right from wrong anymore. They are watching things and listening to things, thinking about things and acting on things without even noticing what they are doing. And then they notice something seems wrong in my worship. Something seems wrong in my prayer. And he says, it is this distance from God that Satan wants to take place. So before we kind of jump into some aspects, and one of the things that takes place in a series like this is there's a hundred different ways I could go on this. I'm going to try to focus on a couple of different specific things. But before we jump into that, I want to make sure that I make clear tonight that as we discuss really this idol of sex within our culture, we have to be very clear here. Uh, God created sex, and it is designed to be a wonderful, important thing. Uh, 
I heard it was on the radio. It was on a it was on a Christian. It was on a podcast, and they're talking like they said one of one of the reasons that many many years ago your grandfather pursued your grandmother is because she was an attractive woman and she was attracted to him, and there was an intimate draw to her that was only allowed to take place within the bonds of marriage, and thus your grandfather married your grandmother, and thus you exist. I'm not going to get into birds and bees. That's farther I'm going to go, right? But what he was emphasizing was we are in a world now where to get intimacy, to satisfy the desires that God has put into our lives, you don't have to get married. So why is marriage not continuing? Well, that's part of the answer. Is is Part of what you received out of marriage was this intimacy. Now, we understand outside of marriage it is a fake and false intimacy, but the pleasure that comes from that, there's no waiting. Uh, You don't have to wait for that. In fact, our, our kids are being told to, to, to not only follow their body and their desires, but to do it at a younger and younger and younger age, to literally make, in a sense, what, what is happening in our world is they're telling kids to make sexual decisions at age five. And all of that is, we talked about Freud that way back when we worked, worked through cultural uh, things. That's all. Freud, Freud believed that all beings were sexual, all kids were sexual. There's a reason some of the things that are taking place in the world are taking place. If you haven't paid attention, there's a reason that adult-grown men are videotaping themselves and other men do pedophilic acts in a mall in Houston where they brought in kids and, and raped young children and are putting that out publicly. Uh, there are steps that go here, and it includes once you say anything goes and kids are un- able to make their own sexual decisions, I'm telling you, pedophilia is the next it's okay to do it that's on the list. And part of the reason is, and this is me getting really grumpy, part of the reason is because a lot of these people that fall down this range are already dealing with pedophilia and probably are pedophiles. Fun. God designed sex to be a sacred thing. He designed it to be something that is a beautiful privilege and a beautiful thing between a husband and a wife. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon. When I was a young man, I remember when I came across Song of Solomon, they did not give me any kids' devotionals in Song of Solomon. My parents never directed me to Song of Solomon. In fact, I even remember one time, I don't know if you'll remember, I, I was, sometimes when my, my dad was preaching and, and I was having a hard time paying attention, I did the next most visible thing, I just kind of worked through the Bible. Usually Revelation, lots of lightning bolts and thunder and war and that sort of thing. But I remember one time, I ended up at Song of Solomon, my mom was next to me and she saw that I was there and she said, she turned to me and went, no. And actually turned to another book of the Bible. She didn't even pick a place in the Bible, she just turned a book of the Bible. I, I understand there's a reason that that took place, but I think one of the things that we, and I would even include myself as a youth pastor in the past, failed is to talk about how wonderful marriage is, how the relationship between male and female, how important it is. Now, there has been a lot of different ways people have walked through Song of Solomon, and the pendulum kind of swing. There are some that say, this is only about salvation, right? To which I'd say, I, are you sure? But there are also some that have now swung the pendulum all, to the other, all the way to the other side 
and said, well, this is only about intimacy, sexual intimacy, to which I would say, I don't think that's totally true as well. You've heard me say before, the, the word that is used that says that Adam knew Eve is the same word that is used in terms of God knowing us and us, us knowing God. That does not mean don't make it some weird sexual thing. It means to know a person to the fullest extent. And God makes the picture in Ephesians of husband and wife is Christ and the church. There is a sacred connection there that, that takes place there. So there's a couple of things here, that uh, a few things that I just want to point out in terms of the sacredness of intimacy the way it is supposed to be. Whether we take the fireplace, that a fire in a fireplace is a good thing, but a fire outside of the fireplace in your house is a problem because thus the house burns down. So four things amongst others. So Song of Solomon, we'll start with chapter 4 and verse 16. I'm going to try to stay away from the uncomfortable verses, but you can, well, anyway. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south. Blow upon my garden that its spices may flow out. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its pleasant fruits. There is a Song of Solomon, as we know, is uh, a, there's a poetic wisdom connection with the relationship between uh, a husband and a wife. And the first thing that we see, and it, it pops up all throughout the book, is the intensity of intimacy within marriage. God uh, allows us to see this, and it is something I think for most of you to understand, there is an aspect of that that is important. There is passionate enthusiasm in these two that love each other. When sexual intimacy is sacred, it is intense. It is designed to be, by God, one of the most intense sensual experiences. It is something that, I saw one quote on Song of Solomon, the singer goes to great lengths within the Song of Solomon, piling superlative upon superlative to show the extravagance of their love to one another. These who love each other sing passionately of their joy in each other. They pursue each other uh, uh, boldlessly, uh, and, and, and even in some senses, some would say almost shamelessly. This is really a love and a physical intimacy that there is, it is without shame. It is, the, it is the, the, the marriage bed being undefiled. This is the way it is supposed to take place. This is something that has to be guarded against when it comes to working with, I've worked with many in premarital counseling, and, and very often those who have come from a very conservative background, they've spent 20 years being told sex is bad, and, and sex is dirty, and sex is awful. Now, does the world, have, does the world make sex bad, dirty, and awful? Yes, but that doesn't mean that that was the intent. That is not what sex was designed to be. It is supposed to be intense. But another part that is so important, very important in this, and this is where it gets lost in the world around us, is it is to be restrained. It is something that is, to be, that is designed to be restrained. We read chapter 4, verse 16. This is really, these two go together, right? So this is not some crude... Uh, we're going, I'm going to love and make love to and have intimacy with everyone. It is not lusting. It is not 
It is not leering on someone. It is not uh, uh, mistreating someone or, or seeing them as an object, something just to be used. It is something that maybe we would say it is a love that refuses to be awakened before its time. Now, there are a couple of verses that really kind of show that here. Uh, so look back at chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, I, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Chapter 5, verse 8, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am lovesick. There is a waiting that is happening there. Uh, later on, chapter 8, verse 4, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Chapter 4, we kind of saw the end, verse, verse 16. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, a symbolism that is taking place there uh, of a symbolism of, uh, of this relationship. Verse 12 kind of gives it, A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. There's a reference here that this is something that was waited on. It was something that was not stirred up and desired. And then verse 16, we would say, is, is, the, is the wedding night. The woman calls out, now is the time for this restraining to be ended. It is something that is restrained. You could add the word reserved there. This sacred act that is designed to glue people together. If you were to come up with a way to help relationships, and it was a way that would, that would create a way that people were literally chemically, addictively addicted to each other, loving to receive pleasure from and give pleasure to the other person and wanting to be committed to them, you could not find a better system than God put in place, at least that includes the aspect of physical intimacy. It is a gluing together of people. It is an intimate level of connection and relationship that is so important. There's a reason that God also puts in his word that any time that we are rebelling against or sinning against God, what is, the, what is the, the connection that is made there? It is compared to what? Unfaithfulness. It is compared to adultery, one of the worst things that someone can do to each other. It is to be restrained. It is to be reserved. It is to be for the one that the person is married to and none other. It's the way God designed it, and it is a beautiful, wonderful, incredible design. The next thing we see there, and I didn't put a verse because it's really kind of all of Song of Solomon. There is a mutuality. If you were to walk through Song of Solomon, you do not see a number of things. You don't see just one person acting upon another person. It is quite the contrary. Both are involved. Both parties are involved. It is, a, it is a back and forth conversation and actions that are taking place. The man speaks. The woman speaks. The chorus sings. It's an alleluia chorus after an intimate discussion about the intimacy between a man and a woman. There is a mutuality thing there. One of the things that Sex outside of marriage and what the world around us is really doing, whether you talk, want to talk about, start talking about virtual reality or whether you want to start talking about AI, you know, we're barely adjusting to the internet. Some of you are barely adjusting to apps. Uh, you're like 40 years behind already. It, it's, uh, it, it's kind of crazy. And, and so what happens is what the world and Satan want is for a person to be an object to be used, not necessarily something to give any reciprocation. 
not someone or something to have something that is a commitment. It is basically, what can I get out of this? What is the pleasure I get out of something? What is the hit that I give out of some, off of something? One of the things I continually talk with young people about and talk with premarital counseling as well about is uh, this type of activity is something that is designed to be addictive. Why do you think Satan is trying to get our kids so early when they're in developmental stages of their life? The reason is because God designed our mind that, that all sexual activity, this is, this is a Harvard study, this isn't even a Christian study. Harvard was very clear that all sexual activity is learned and it is addictive. The reason that is addictive is it takes all the highs, the drugs that would give you highs would, and all of the, the downs and the dopamine, that all takes place when it comes to intimacy. Uh, there is an aspect where because of what the mind and the body and, and all the chemicals, I always tell the young people, don't take it too personally, it's just chemicals. That's really all it is. It's just electricity, it's synopsis, it's chemicals, all right? I, I, I still remember the girl that first kissed me and she didn't even mean it. But I remember it because I felt like my cheek was on fire for an hour. Even though afterwards he said, I didn't mean it. There is an aspect that God created these things. And so, and so it's, isn't it amazing what the terminology the Bible uses? Do not stir this up. Do not awaken this. Do not unrestrain this. What does Satan in the world say? Let's get this going at age four, five, and six. Let's, let's talk about sexuality. Let's talk about uh, gender. Let's talk about all those things. Let's talk about your desires. Let's put pictures in front of our kids that stir up things that should not be stirred up. And that is what Satan wants to do, to ruin the most beautiful thing that God put in place, the, the relationship between Adam and Eve. The next thing I would put here is it's permanence. Uh, chapter 8, uh, verses 6 and 7. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. <coughs> Sounds like a Twilight book a little bit. There is this, it's just, oh, love. The eternal aspect of love. In fact, most youth adult romance fiction is all designed around eternal love. Why vampires and werewolves? Because they last forever and love is forever. What is the draw of one of the major cults within our world is that your marriage can be forever. It can affect eternity. Love is so powerful. Christ is very clear that our marriages do not last into eternity. But at least as long as we are here on this earth, there is a permanence. This depiction in Song of Solomon is really the opposite of what the world wants to say. The Bible leaves no doubt that intimacy does not have to be an idol. It is something that can be enjoyed within this intensity, within the restraint, uh, within the, something that is reserved, the mutuality and the permanence. Um, when this is done right, it becomes, it's not only healthy, it's godly. It is wholesome. God is glorified in an intense, wonderful, intimate relationship between a man 
and a woman. And the place that we have lost the battle, I think, sometimes is we have not described how wonderful and important it is to even give glory to God and commitment and to seeking to bring pleasure to one another within marriage. So how about a case study? Let's look at what the Bible says happens when this goes wrong. Go to the book of Judges. Basically, if if you want examples of what happens when everything goes wrong, you could probably just read through Judges. Judges is a time when all mankind is doing what is right in their own eyes. If we're looking for insight into this modern idol of wanting what we want and wanting it now, I think one of the case studies and examples in the Bible is Samson. Samson has a major weakness for women. Samson's story, which we, you know, we tell all the kids all the good stories and all the, all the, the strength stories, but sometimes we stay away from some of these other things. It, this provides, I think, kind of a little bit of a metaphor or a case study or example for what happens when, they, when a person turns more and more to sex of an, as an idol. Judges 13 gives the circumstances of Samson's birth. In fact, when you read it out loud quickly, it kind of makes you think about Jesus Christ. Born into an Israelite family, his mother was unable to conceive children. She was learned from an angel that she would be given a son who would be dedicated to God as a Nazarite. That sounds like a Christmas story. Samson's parents seek direction from God in prayer. They receive another angelic visitation. They keep their promises to raise the boy as one specifically devoted to God. In fact, even within our own lives, we would see some parallels of uh, that, that we have seen God used temptation, uh, not God used, we have seen the world and Satan use temptation to take those away, to follow down the path of, of sex and pleasure and doing what I want that came from a very solid family and a very solid church background. I mean, his parents were solid in this, but we're also going to see there are some times that they're going to fail. Samson probably had heard his parents dedicate him to God and had been reminded over and over, you are dedicated, you are set apart for God. But like Samson, we can be led astray. Um, And this story kind of helps us identify, I think, some characteristics of the unsacred area that this idol can take us captive to. The first one that I would say is, is it is impersonal. Impersonal. Outside of how God has designed sex, it is impersonal. We kind of started to talk about this already. If you've read the story of Samson, you may be surprised to notice that the Bible really introduces him after, his account of, after the account of his birth is not a description of his strength. That is not the, really the first description, but it's a depiction of his weakness. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So went up, he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore... Get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. The Bible does not tell us that Samson even met this woman. What does it say? He saw her, apparently did not know her, very possibly has not spoken a word to her. 
In fact, the account, we often think of who's, who's the woman that we connect with Samson. Samson and... But this is not Delilah. In fact, in over 600 words that is given to this part of the account, the Bible never gives us the name of this woman. This is just the woman. It's almost like the Bible is making a, 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 emphasizing a point here that was taking place in how Samson viewed this. There, there's no name. There's no connection. Uh, there is no thought process that is going on other, other than what? She pleases me well. She's hot. That's probably a word I don't think, I don't know what the Hebrew word for hot is. But man, she is good looking. The story I always tell, told the young people was there, there, there was a certain very famous actress a number of years ago that she said, I'm only a $100 meal uh, and a nice intimate evening away from having a good time. It's actually just science if you take away commitment and if you take away where it's supposed to take place. Apparently, this woman's name was not important. That's the impersonal aspect. When intimacy is sacred, it is intensely intimate. When it's idolatrous, it always becomes impersonal. It isn't about the person anymore. It's about me and what I want. It's almost like her family wasn't important. Actually, it's, it's absolutely that her family wasn't important. They're saying, this is not the right kind of woman, not from the right kind of family. Now, there are some aspects here that are very important in terms of the Israelites and also the Philistines. We just went through Joshua. Joshua had given all the warnings about what happens if you go down this road. She was the wrong one. She was not the one. I try to tell young people all the time. There's only one time you find out who the one is, and that's when this happens. They're not the one until they are before God, the one. Her background, her values, her religion, her faith, her beliefs, unimportant. He knew only one thing. I want that. I want her. Saw another quote. Idolatrous sex is just mere sex. It is not intimacy. It is interesting in the Hebrew, there are two different words for the sexual act. And in the Old Testament, when it is between a man and a woman, <coughs> excuse me, it is what, what I said, it is that knowing one another. But there is another word that is used, often is used in Proverbs, is used in other times where there's adulterous relationships, and it is the Hebrew word for the exchange of fluids. That's all it is. It is a totally different word. It's a fascinating study how very clear the terminology is used even within the Hebrew. It becomes a process. It becomes an aspect of getting pleasure. Something that is supposed to create intimacy is impersonal. And this is prevalent in our society today. It's prevalent in the, it is interesting because the world does not like the objectification of the female body. At least they say that. 
but they don't really mean it. I think the times that people say that is when it's their themselves that is being objectified, or it is their daughters or family or loved ones that are being objectified. But we are in a world that over and over and over makes things an object. Lust and infidelity, adultery, denies relationship. When it is done right, it enhances the relationship. When it is done wrong, it hurts the relationship. Lust and using someone turns someone into an object or a thing or a non-person. This also can happen within marriage because within marriage, the attitudes can be wrong as well. In fact, much that can take place within a marriage when when one person now starts saying, this is something that I have earned or I should have or you owe it to me, this is what I can get out of it, it always creates a world of problems within within the intimacy side of a relationship. Another thing a word maybe I could use is there's an, an, an incess, incessant part of it. Uh, Judges 16, verses 4 through 17. Let's read it. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him and find out where his great strength lies. We know where his weakness is, Right? And by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him. And every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and with what you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, yet not dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings, yet not dried, and she bound him with them. Now men were lying in wait, staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound with. So he said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And men were lying in wait, staying in the room. But he broke them off in his arms like thread. Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the bat of the loom and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you? That would have been an important question earlier on in this passage. When your heart is not with me. Now, I've got a couple more verses I'm going to read. When I read this earlier, I kind of marked this down. In many senses, that little phrase is the definition of the world's misapplication of intimacy. You say you love me, but your heart is not with me. You have mocked me these these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. I won't talk about how that can be applied to marriage. That he told her all his heart and said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. And I have that stopping there, but it is interesting what the next verse starts to say. 
when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart. Isn't that interesting? They had lived in lies so much up to that point that when he finally told the truth and finally bared his soul, it was obvious. And you say, well, didn't she figure that out earlier? Apparently not. Apparently this is the first time Samson ever really opened up. So she's like, that is real. This is, of course, the most famous episode in Samson's life. It is this Delilah, a story that you can reveal a lot of things. Uh, it can, I think it reveals that God, there is a revelation here in Samson, the judges, that God still uses the most flawed people to accomplish his purposes. That definitely is, is one of the lessons. I think it depicts the perils of sin in general. I think it depicts the perils of sexual sin. It illustrates the wisdom and admonition uh, that maybe you could write down here, Proverbs 5, 3, and 4, which you could probably write Delilah's names next to. Though the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey and her words are smoother than oil, in the end she's a bitter, as bitter as wormwood and as sharp as a double-edged sword. In addition to all these things, there's a bit of a map that kind of takes place in terms of the characteristics of this idolatry, and so it is this incessant nature. I would also say there is an addictive nature that is kind of connected to this. Samson was not a student of fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Clearly, Samson should have seen through this deception. We tend to get into Samson was such an idiot mode, to which I wouldn't disagree. But I actually think another part of this that we have to consider is Samson's overconfidence that it doesn't matter how many times the Philistines come upon me, I will always win this. And the other thing was his addiction to Delilah, right? Because he kind of keeps doing things. The, the part that is kind of between the lines is the relationship between Delilah and Samson that was even seen earlier. I mean, Samson knows she can't be trusted, but she's a beautiful woman. And Samson is getting what he wants out of this. I mean, Delilah is a real piece of work. He should have recognized through the, and seen through all of those things. But eventually, it wore him down, Right? Uh, as I said, uh, it came to pass, verse 16, she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Samson's doom was sealed because this woman of temptation kept coming back and kept banging away at, on the door of, hey, this is what I need to find this information of. Samson did not become smarter with every temptation. His will was weakened with every temptation, and he kept giving in more and more until even it seems like his sense of right and wrong and danger has completely been removed from his life. We are in a world that keeps throwing images and temptation and ideas at us over and over and over and over again. I think one of the great dangers of the society we live in is the nature of the incessant nature of always being bombarded with all these things. It is idolatry. Now, I know you said, you said this is an, an idol. Yeah, but, but 
Uh, it is this idolatry aspect. I also, there's another word I kind of got off of, it was an I word. It, was, it, is, I, it is idealized. One of the opportunities that we have when we read the Bible is we're able to read a passage over and over, and we kind of get to know it a little bit more. Um, so just a couple of verses that I kind of put down there. We had already looked at this passage, all right? So verse 10 there. Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. Verse 13, uh, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me with what you may be bound with. And uh, verse 15, then, um, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? What's missing? What's missing in this conversation? What, not once is there this obvious pointed out. There appear to be Philistines in the house every time this happens. Everything's okay is what Samson keeps thinking. It's all okay. Not once do we have Samson saying, can I ask you a question? Just, every time I tell you what makes me weak, I wake up with that thing happening with me, with guys attacking me. Could we have a conversation about this? Instead, Samson's like, it's okay. Like I said, he is way overly confident. He is not recognizing the danger. I, felt, I feel like that is another part. We don't recognize the danger. We don't recognize the extreme sinfulness of sin. We do not recognize the danger that we are in. We don't recognize the danger we're in in our relationships. We don't recognize the danger we are in and what we expose ourselves to and what we say, that's okay, I can watch that. It's a really good show and that part doesn't affect me. We say all these things and we say we're going to be okay, but we're not. Samson was living in a sexual dream world. He got what he wanted, and he got a lot of what he wanted, and it didn't matter even though all the danger signs were literally guys in his house with weapons. He couldn't even recognize that. We in our world today have the weapons of the world on our phones and on our laptops and in front of us and on our TVs. The weapons are in the room, yet we don't recognize the danger. I would say the other thing is here, Samson does not recognize that Delilah is not a high character quality woman. Delilah has some character flaws going on here. He should have said, I don't know if this is a safe woman to be around. Idolatry in this area is the denial of the real in favor of the fantasy. The denial of the real in favor of the fantasy. It is chasing after the wind. It is saying, I won't get hurt. It is saying that no one will get hurt when that's never true. There have been some excellent books written about the reach and the numbers of the pornography industry, what it does to young women, Nowadays, what it's doing to children. The pornography industry has moved into child pornography with an, at an unbelievable rate. You don't have to go very far to find out there's a reason that children are being captured away and taken because the market is big. And that's what our world does. Because, and I remember when I was reading, again, a decade ago, there was one person, it was, he wrote out, they basically put together the numbers that the pornography industry made more money than the NFL, the NBA, and MLB, and NHL made combined 10 years ago. It is a, an industry that is designed to destroy and to ruin 
lives. But there's a market for it. Another quote I read. One of the problems with this area of sexuality is too many people now are into this world of imagination. If a person decides to go down these paths, especially when it comes to digital intimacy, this person does not have to deal with rejection. These dream girls all love him. None will refuse him. He never has to deal with his own personal impotence or nervousness. Everything always goes well. The girl is always flawless. He doesn't have to deal with, and I apologize, obnoxious odors. He doesn't have to deal with significant times within a 30-day period. He does not have to deal with diseases or a lack of interest. This young lady does not act rudely. She is not critical. She is not trying to take advantage of him or get his money unless he clicks on a certain link. She is willing to perform any act because she is there to serve him. And finally, and most importantly, this person at least believes they don't have to worry about getting caught. It's a perfect little dream world and nothing will go wrong. Will it? There's an idealizing that takes place. There is, and what it does is it, we have young people that are, are growing up and their, their understanding of and their thoughts of what intimacy truly is or isn't has been taught to them by sinners and by Satan and by the world around them. The story does not end well. We know this. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all her heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, come up once more. I mean, these guys had to be a little bit discouraged as well, right? Every set of guys that he had sent in there had been defeated. He has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. She told them, this is the real deal. She lulled him to sleep on her knees, called for a man, and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And you know the rest of the story. We know it from Sunday school. We shake our heads at it. The Bible says that the Lord had left Samson, but Samson's spiritual senses were too dull to notice it. It takes a heavy toll. One excellent author in this area, his name is Steve Gallagher, says this, A sexual addict does not generally realize the negative effect it has on their daily life. The weight of sexual sin is a weight that is unrealized. Even the smallest of tasks with people around him become burdensome to him. His wife cannot comprehend while he is unable to spend time with her or their kids. She does not understand the taxing load that sin is carving into his life. All of his energy is being exhausted to maintain and pursue his secret life It's like a computer with not enough megabytes of RAM trying to run a program it can't handle. The inner strength and the spiritual capability is simply not available. Paul describes the imaginations of a man given over to sin as being vain. In fact, they are worse off than they realize. Not only are they devoid of reality, they also 
are, they also have lost the power to be able to secure and save and sanctify one's soul and to do anything of substance or value. He says a few paragraphs later, our minds are the battleground. Our imaginations are a trophy to be won. Satan even wants to use our imaginative power to visualize everything and act on anything that we can, especially if it's in direct conflict with the will of God. Samson learned the hard way, and for him, the end way of what the consequences were. And we've gone through these paths before. So this one, this is the last section here again. We've walked through this before. It's been a little while since we've done this. But how do we walk through this? How do we, how do we address these things? The first thing that we always start with every time as we've gone through this series is, do I need to repent of something? This idol of a false sensuality can be one of the most stubborn idols a person can face. Because of the addictive nature that it is, there are many and I have counseled some that feel it is a battle that cannot be won because of the addicted nature to this. But an idol is an idol, and God gives and promises to give victory. But that always has to start with repenting, to repent of all sexual idolatry. I found this list. I liked it. They were talking about how do you, how do you determine whether you need to repent of this. So this is what this person put. Repent of entertaining any secret or impure thoughts. Repent of staring at attractive strangers. Repent of lingering looks on ads or on social media. Repent of using pornography. Repent of treating sex as a substitute for intimacy instead of enjoying it as a means of intimacy with your spouse. Repent of seeking out sexually arousing articles, books, magazines, websites, apps. Repent of enjoying the scenes in the movies and the shows that you watch. Repent of even picking movies and shows and things that, that, are, that are designed to draw our attention. Repent of creating fantasies about acquaintances. Repent of voyeurism, which is watching other people to try to bring stimulation to oneself. Repent of treating your spouse as an object. Repent of, repent of making crude sexual remarks. Repent of telling dirty jokes. And this author says this, if any of these things describe us, we should repent. Repentance is always the first line of defense. The willingness to come to God and saying, this is an area of my life that threatens my walk before you. One of the uh, authors that I read, he said, this is what he counsels every young man that he's working with in this area. He has him put it on a sign or he has him write it down and, and he basically says this, this sin threatens everything I hold most dear. This sin threatens everything I hold most dear. Uh, I mentioned uh, Steve Gallagher. If, there, if you know someone who is dealing with this and, uh, or if you yourself would like to help someone with this, uh, one book I probably would recommend at the top of my list is a book called At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry by Steve Gallagher. And uh, you can understand why the idolatry thing came there a little bit. I think there's an aspect also of submission. We need to submit to God when it comes to what he has called us to do. The problem with all of these idols is we want to say, I want what I want, and I want it now. And part of submission is recognizing, no, God has said it's going to be done this way, and I will submit to his will. 
This is the crux of every wrong decision we make, especially the ones where we make a wrong decision and we knew it was the wrong decision according to God, but we wanted to do it otherwise. What we have done is we have said, I'm not submitting to God on this one. I'm going to do it my own way. We must submit to God. And the most important places to deal with this are the areas that we know we don't want to submit to God. There's the aspect of commitment. I put Job 31.1 there. Many of you know that is Job making a covenant uh, with his eyes. And that covenant, basically the principle there is I'm not going to look on a wicked thing. I'm not going to look at that stuff. I'm going to turn my eyes away from that stuff to make this commitment to not do those things. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4. This reminder of what God has done in our lives. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, and that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through, as you open the Bible, you see, that is in the world through lust. We have to make a commitment to the Lord. I think there's also this importance of an awareness, to be aware of the nature of sin. Um, I used to give an example to the young people. I would say, if you were told by your doctor that, that, that donuts are a problem, you need to stop eating donuts. In fact, they're really bad for you. You need to make sure you don't walk by the donut shop every morning. And if you live above a donut shop, you need to buy another place. There has to be an awareness of, a fle- whether it's fleeing from the devil, there has to be awareness of saying, I keep walking down these paths that take me across these temptations, and that's got to stop. That has to stop. We have to be aware of the fact that we can be tempted. And finally, I would remind you that you should be accountable. To be accountable. For me personally, I have men in my life, including my dad, uh, which hold me accountable. And we're able to have those conversations. And there are tools that we can use to even help us in terms of some of these things. I would say to put little speed bumps and roadblocks. But also, I had to fight as a young man through kind of the same thing, where my parents cut off every avenue of temptation as best as they can and did not succeed. And then I just kept thinking, well, the way that I solve any weakness as a man is I just need to eliminate the temptation. And that can't happen. You cannot fully eliminate the temptation. Should you put in the roadblocks? Should you flee the devil? Should you put in the filter? Should you do all those things? Yes, absolutely. But the other level is our accountability before God and even our accountability to others. If this is something you struggle with, you need to talk to someone and seek some help. You need to repent. You need to submit to God. You need to make sure that you make a commitment for God and you start putting the right tools in action, but you need someone to walk with you through this. And most importantly, I close with this, we need to pray harder. We need to pray for our young people. 
We need to pray for our church family. We need to pray for the marriages within our church family. And we need to be reminded that the way we handle ourselves as a part of a church family affects our church family. It's designed to be good. And Satan, like he wants to do with every good thing that God has created, has twisted this one all up. And we're in a world that's going to keep doing all of this to try to twist this all up. We need to pray, we need to follow him, and we need to keep proclaiming this as well. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you very much for your word. Lord, we know these stories, and Lord, there are other stories within your word, David and Bathsheba, and and, uh, Lord, your word talks about temptations, so many parts of the book of Proverbs. And Lord, we recognize, and probably every single person in here knows, the devastating results of adultery, infidelity, Uh, Lord, I know many, out, not even myself, many beyond myself, um, believe that there is, there is this huge number of the amount of people that are affected by pornography, uh, of sexual images. Lord, what an awful, evil industry. Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of the importance of our commitments within our own lives. And Lord, I would pray that you would help us when we think about these things to remember that you are not surprised by these things. As we've walked through some of these different areas in the past, Lord, through on these Sunday nights, there are aspects that there is a discouragement. But Lord, we also know that you are a God who is getting glory uh, through those who are in committed relationships. And you are a God that even continues to mend relationships that are broken and direct men and women uh, to be in relationships that are honoring to you. Lord, I want to pray for our young people in this church. I want to pray for the kids in this church as the world continues to do everything it can to expose them to junk, to expose them to lies. Lord, really, I believe to seek to destroy them before they can even be committed in the way that they are to be committed. So, Lord, please do a work. Protect our kids. Lord, I pray you'll protect our marriages. I pray you'll help sin to be addressed and dealt with, to be confessed, and for us to dedicate ourselves to following after you no matter what. And Lord, I pray that we would recognize if there's any person in here, Lord, for some of us that are are interacting with and, and being influences on those who are struggling with these things, Lord, that we would be able to be an encouragement to them, whether by this resource or other resources, and most importantly, by the word of God. And Lord, I would pray that the marriages of First Baptist Church of Illyria would give glory and honor to you and have the opportunity to experience what it means to be blessed by you and their commitment to you and to each other. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.